Hello and welcome to Time for Cakes Now, episode 31, with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And this is our third book club episode, where we're bringing to you a discussion of Origami by Rachel Armstrong, followed by an interview with Rachel herself. Origami came out in 2018. It was published by Newcon Press. And during the episode, uh, we're probably not going to go into too much spoiler territory, because um, I think it really is a book that you have to experience and hopefully listen to our episode might inspire you to get a copy and read it but i think we will be sort of getting into sort of our thoughts on the book our feelings about it because it's very unique it's a bit of an experience as books go (laughs) and uh i think it's a nice third addition to our book club series having already done the loosening skin by alia whiteley and paris adrift by ej swift yep it's a really unique book So there's plenty to discuss without going into the uh, plot, including why it's very difficult to describe the plot. So let's crack on. So Origami is a book that I think is best enjoyed going in pretty cold in terms of what actually occurs within it. So I'm just going to start by reading the blurb from the, uh, the back of the book. Mobius knows she isn't a novice weaver, but it seems she must relearn the art of manipulating space-time all over again. Encouraged by her parents, Newton and Shelley, she starts to experiment, and is soon travelling far and wide across the galaxy, encountering a dazzling array of bizarre cultures and races along the way. Yet all is not well, and it soon becomes clear that a dark menace is gathering, one that could threaten the very fabric of time and space, and will require all weavers to unite if the universe is to survive. And very recently, Origami has been nominated for the Brave New Worlds Award, uh, I think which is run by Starburst magazine. And the winner of that is going to be announced at Edgelet later this year. Yes. And indeed, one of the other nominees is The Loosening Skin. <laughs> so it's a good shortlist. <laughs> we do pick our books well. <laughs> so Origami is focused around a central character, Mobius, who we come to discover is not a character in the, in the traditional sense. <laughs> She's part of a... I suppose I'd describe them as a as a group of entities who are able to perform the ability to uh, manipulate, create, modify, travel to different areas of space-time. And it kind of takes the idea of the phrase, the fabric of space-time, and uses um, sort of in-world mechanisms used by these entities to be able to essentially cast knots and weave together cosmic substances which are created at the will of these beings in order to explore, manipulate and understand the universes around them. And Mobius in particular, so she's the character through whose eyes we follow events, she begins in a state where, I think in terms of it being useful for describing the concepts in the book, she is somebody who's part of this troupe, and indeed there are lots of um, uh, references to a circus troupe to describe um, how these entities sort of coexist together. She's trying to understand how to origami, how to actually perform these acts of space-time manipulation and creation. But this is not a new thing for her. It's something that she clearly could do before, and she and all of her siblings and cousins, who are all equally Sort of strangely part of this family it's unclear sort of how they're all connected she's kind of gone out on her own for some reason and is unable to perform these skills 
in the way that she once was able to do it. And as the book progresses, we understand some of the reasons why that is. But what we're doing really is following the rules of the origami technique as she uh, reacquires these skills and describes not only the journeys that she goes on, but also her own thought processes as she interacts with characters and indeed concepts that exist in the universe around her. And a lot of what we experience, as you might expect from that description, which is quite abstract as well, uses a lot of uh, perceptions of events that I think are very normal to Mobius and the characters within her family, but are relatively hard to translate to the reader, were it not for the fact that they are very, very well described and create some of the most remarkable sort of poetic and visual imagery as you're going through things. Because ultimately, Mobius and all these characters are experiencing the universe from a completely different viewpoint to us. It's not something that we have any handle on. And yet there are moments where we can relate to events simply because the descriptions are so precise that we can enter the mind of Mobius and interact with the universe in the way she does as well. And as she's going on this journey of rediscovering the ability to origami, uh, not only understanding how to do it, but what it means, what powers it actually holds, and the fact that it affects both space and time uh, in ways that become um, elaborated on throughout the book. There are some very interesting sort of characters around her who ground this strange transcendental being in something more familiar and domestic, I think, for the reader, which is her relationship with her parents, who are uh, Newton and Shelley, one of whom, uh, Newton, her father, is a giant of potentially immense scale and presence within the world who seems to have an all-knowing view of the universe as it has been and will be as well. And the other, her mother, Shelley, who is a sort of small Thumbelina-like character, <laughs> um, again, with immense power and connection to sort of the the world around her and, and does act as the mother, not only to Mobius, but also lots of other siblings who are initially described early on as being called by their coordinates because that's how these entities sort of perceive their existence but uh, many of whom later get names uh, later on. So I think the the uses of the names Newton and Shelley are quite telling because a, a lot of this book is effectively a, a marrying together of scientific concepts and artistic concepts mm. And ideas within storytelling, ideas within scientific exploration through storytelling and vice versa. And uh, when you compare that with what Rachel does herself, being professor of experimental architecture, that this idea of bringing together multiple disciplines into one new imaginative creation is a part of what she does. And these beings, these weavers, are in some ways deity-like mm. because they have these extraordinary powers that are beyond the comprehension of, of us mere mortals um, and in other ways are very domestic and recognisable. 
um, you know, in amongst all of these universe-expanding, mind-bending expeditions that Mobius goes on, you get these little vignettes of mundane domesticity, mm-hmm. uh, like the point where she she comes back and she can't get into the bathroom because <laughs> her parents are having a shower together, <laughs> and these these little things that are so human but on a, a, a cosmic scale. Um, the, the only other thing I can really compare it to is if if you try to imagine exploring the universe of Doctor Who through the eyes of Time Lords rather than their companions, because Doctor Who is always framed through, the, ultimately through the eyes and experience of the companions, because what the Doctor knows and is capable of doing is beyond them. And, you know, th- these beings are time lord-esque in a way i think in in terms of their ability to stand outside everything else and observe and then move through space-time yeah there's a tremendous amount of uh, mythology which exists in what is a relatively short novel it does create a sense that we are looking at the world like you say through through the eyes of the gods but crucially what i love is that it's not written from the perspective of gods as if they were mortals Mm. as a means to make it easier to comprehend it feels like we are experiencing the world from their perspective but also using metaphors and descriptions and concepts that they would relate to that are normal to them but are somewhat intractable to us at first but strangely you become more in tune with how these descriptions work as the book goes on and you realize after a while that you're seeing everything from a different perspective and it's remarkable just to look at a book that's to do with something as as huge as the you know as the concepts of of the fabric of space-time itself and see it from the perspective of the beings who are in a sense part of that level of creation as well Um, it's not something that is easy to grasp but it's remarkable how carefully put together the story is told so that it doesn't seem uh, too abstract or something that's hard to engage with and in order to add to this unusual uh, perspective as well the book is written from the first person present perspective the character of mobius Mm. Um, although that does alter a little bit towards the end of the book. I think it's interesting there because obviously, you know, Mobius is not really a person at all, I suppose. (laughs) So a first person present description is probably not the best way of doing it. First being present, (laughs) something like that. So the book is made up of often very short chapters, some chapters which are just a a paragraph or, or a sentence and others that are a few pages long. What did you make of that way of moving through a book? So I think we'll come on to that a little bit later on. So you should, so you should remind me about you know, how how Rachel has, I think, put the whole book together um, in, a, in a much bigger sense. But um, in terms of the chapter structure, yeah, it's it's weird. It's because you're essentially going through these little adventures that Mobius goes on. You're occasionally um, having a moment almost within her consciousness as she's having a thought or a perception about something or she's remembering something. It can feel quite erratic at times, but I think 
part of that disorientation that can come from that firstly fits with the fact that she's sometimes quite frustrated with her inability to develop her origami skills to the level they were originally her sometime well her her frustration with uh, with Newton her father which is at times at uh, antagonistic but also one where she she also reveres him as somebody who she almost cannot get close to but not in the parent child relationship but in the sense that he is almost a more elevated being that she cannot begin to understand so she she's struggling to give him the benefit of the doubt when she can't understand him but at other times she listens to him in order to get a sense of what is going on and i think that frustration that she has it is played out in the way that you know the book it doesn't really jump around in events but the way there are you know it has kind of a, a stuttering feel as you're experiencing you know things from mobius's perspective but it is notable that it does start to smooth out as she becomes more confident in her skills i think and as the ability for her to master origami abilities and also get a sense of some of these internal conflicts and ideas that she's struggling with notably the um, the character of a child who she occasionally has a sense of in the sense that you catch somebody out of the corner of your eye and you turn around and they're gone but she's always looking for this character but she's not sure if they're real or not a character called klein who is somebody who she respects and reveres a lot who pops up in various vignettes through the first sort of half of the book but becomes a more obvious presence later on you know the way that thoughts and feelings solidify i think is actually relayed by a structure which becomes a lot more honed as the as the book continues yeah i've been trying to consider that kind of structure in terms of some of the other art forms that are frequently referenced within the story um weaving for example is is a a, a big part of it because these entities they have that that loom that mm. sort of weaves together space time in a way and if you think about a tapestry you might use one single color just a couple of threads worth for a couple of stitches and then another color for a long time but the picture won't become clear until you've woven everything if you are making some origami out of a sheet of paper you might do a series of tiny folds followed by a big fold but the thing that you're making again won't become clear until you get to the last few folds if you're a circus performer um, particularly if you're learning your craft you might take a lot of very tentative small steps before taking a big tumble and this this way of moving between tiny little chapters big chapters chapters set in in all sorts of bizarre places within time and space it's it's like a narrative that is made up of all these things that becomes clear as the book moves on and you start to see the whole picture and you know these tiny little threads might only be a couple of stitches in the tapestry but they could be so important later on they could be you know the stitch that forms the, the eye of a person mm -hmm. um, in the middle of the picture 
yeah, I think that's also why it's very hard to go into too much depth about the plot, because ultimately there are seemingly inconsequential details and arcs that as you read become almost like those little threads that you pull on and you know some might just release a small bit of thread others may sort of unravel what happens later on Mm. in the novel so I think that is part of the structure it is a it's the fact that all of these different ideas and concepts are woven together but you actually don't get a sense of it as of the whole story until you read the whole book. But there are large chunks where patterns start to emerge and you start to get a sense of what a series of adventures might be or a series of skills might uh, become relevant for later. If it's sounding like a very complex book to describe, that's because it really, really is. Um, if if I had to describe it in a way that just gave a a sense of the type of thing you might expect from it, it would be a cross between... Hitchhiker's Guide and Ovid's Metamorphosis. Um, And there were multiple times where I I really started thinking of Ovid. Um, Obviously, as you mentioned earlier, it it creates this mythological backdrop of its own. And some of the ways that it occasionally weaves in and out of these little bits and pieces of legend is, is just like in uh, in the metamorphosis um for example the story of Meralda who transforms into Meralda Locks that that literally could be in metamorphosis you could you could take that concept you know replace the the evil wizard with one of the dastardly pantheon of gods who is always screwing things up for um mortals and nymphs and everyone else who who lived on the earth you could place it within that kind of story where things are constantly in flux, things are constantly being discovered and evolving and changing and your perspectives on them are changing, which again is something that runs through the whole of Metamorphosis, this idea of transmogrification. And you know, the, those, those moments of it dwelling on its own mythology in these beautiful ways is like something out of that kind of era of classical poetry. Yeah, a lot of the descriptions, a couple of things I remember when I was uh, reading it were firstly how how beautiful the language is, but also how it took me a while to get into the ease of being able to read it without constantly thinking about the images that were being created. Mm. Um, which is a hard thing to do, actually, when you're trying to you know, get into the novel, but all of a sudden there's a description that creates some, some crazy vision in your head, and you're thinking, wow, um, and you have to then tune back into the book. The other aspect of it, and there are quite a few books, I think, that do do this when I've read them, but this was the most recent one, I think, is it's the kind of story that has a sense of mythology to it, that makes you almost want to read it out loud to somebody. It's almost like you're relating a series of events, some some mythical story to somebody else. Something that may have happened a long time in the past, a long time in the future. It's happening right now in parallel to everything. It's that sense that it's a it's almost like a uh, like a fireplace story. Mm. You know, you can imagine 
relating these events, almost like an oral history of the creation of space-time to somebody else. It's a very weird feeling, but I remember thinking that as much as I was reading it you know, to myself, it's a story that kind of you want to tell out loud. And I think it comes up a little bit when we ha- um, spoke to Rachel herself. It's also not clear whether when you are relating this story, yes, you could read it out loud, but actually there are other forms of media in mm. which you could tell it, whether it would be, well, I think it has to be something visual in a way. Yeah. But in a strange way, you could almost imagine an abridged version of origami being like a very long sort of mythical poem. Mm. You know, it's that kind of it's that kind of feeling. Some of the visual references are so rich and I I know that we have a tendency to bring everything back to Twin Peaks <laughs> because we love Twin Peaks so much, but um those references to the giant copper condensers which distill um, what is it? It's like some kind of space-time dew that creates fibres for the weaving. That made me think of, for example, uh, in Twin Peaks The Return, the the ceiling in the cinema where the firemen in Senorita Dido are, with those grand golden pipes in the ceiling and those rows upon rows of grey, um, sort of cattle-like things... And and indeed, their existence in this strange purple zone where they observe what's happening in the world and occasionally interfere with it in a way that, that seems beyond our comprehension. It, it's that kind of otherworldliness, that kind of glimpse into something that is inevitably surreal for the human mind. And so you could you could try and express it in any particular art form and it would always be something new yeah i completely agree i think that's a really interesting analogy to you know that that sequence in twin peaks simply because i think you could be hard pressed to work out how a sequence like that would ever be scripted or written down or described accurately in words Mm. and in the same way i think there are elements of you know certain passages in origami where they evoke similarly abstract and strange images which are at once both completely abstract to how I would understand or perceive things but also detailed enough that you can see into this world and it's almost like the early parts of the novel act as a means to ease you into this way of looking at things um, which I think is really good. Another way I kind of think about some passages in origami is it can be like going to an art gallery where you're seeing a series of paintings which are all maybe slightly strange but if you were to understand the story behind what was happening in each image it can turn something that is you know simply a very beautiful painting for example into something that's a lot richer when you find out that there's a whole story behind, you know, the characters in the image, when it was set, how it was drawn, what some of the weirder things are. It's almost like you're getting a window into some of the meanings behind some of these images. And they're put into, you know, this this very big thinking kind of story that captures, I think, the complexity of space and time 
but in a way which keeps it abstract whilst also making it very relatable as well. What other works of science fiction capture a similar kind of feeling for you? That's a tough one. Um, I think for me, it evoked the same kind of feelings that I've had whilst watching things like 2001. But specifically, even in that, I would say, you know, the final sequence, the whole Star Child bit at the end of 2001, <laughs> it's almost like it captures that surreal, strange feeling of observing a series of events beyond your comprehension. You know, it's a sequence of events that you're that are being played out and it captures that feeling. I don't know, you know, it doesn't capture the rest of 2001, not in that sense. It's not a traditional science fiction story. It captures sort of the the uneasiness and the eeriness of experiencing the universe through the eyes of beings that we cannot begin to sort of comprehend. Another thing would be um, the character of, well, in terms of how how the concept of, of travelling through space-time works, the one uh, book it did remind me of was, it, is it a spoiler to talk about The Star's My Destination? It was a long time ago. Yeah, it's been around a long time. <laughs> um, but the sequence at the end, again, of that, mm, yeah. when when the character of Gully, Foyle, realises that he's able to sort of transport himself through space and time as well. It's that sense of the world around us, but at a level of understanding that is just beyond sort of what we are used to experiencing. So it takes a tremendous amount of skill to make these things relatable or believable and, and even engaging. But I think it's done very successfully here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, but the, the ending of The Star's My Destination is also one of the things that I mm. was thinking about, yeah. um, particularly when it starts to get quite experimental with the layout of the text being part of the idea of telling the story, mm. um, where there are, are bits where, particularly when you're reading a physical copy of a book, it forces you to rush through pages. The, the first time I read The Star's My Destination, I was on a plane. I managed to get through the entire book on this flight. And I remember distinctly the physical sensation of holding the book in my hands and the transfer of the weight of the pages from one hand to the other as I went through the story. And particularly towards the end, where because of the experimental way it starts to use the text on the page in, in those closing moments, you start turning the pages faster and faster because because of the way that it's laid out. And it feels like the story is rushing through your hands just as this character is rushing through the world or rushing through space, effectively. And I, and I distinctly remember feeling like it was falling away from me that this story was <laughs> about to end. Um, and, and I think when you use unusual narrative structures in that way or, or ways of putting a story on a page, for example, like having a series of very, very short chapters... It gives you that physical sensation of rushing and jumping through something, particularly when you're reading a, you know, a, a paperback like we were, where the, the pages are flicking through your fingers at a faster rate than you expect. It's part of the experience of that. Does, does that make any sense? <laughs> I don't know if it does. Yeah, I, th I think it's that it's that feeling of, of sort of the rush of going 
through the universe. And I think to tap into that feeling in a book is a very difficult thing to do. But in origami, I just felt like I was at times hurtling forward through mm. through space-time with Mobius. Other times I was so kind of confused by things that I felt like Mobius sort of trapped and sort of bouncing around in a world, you know, unclear of what's going on. Other times, some of the descriptions of the experiences, the worlds that she's going to and her perception of how these things appear to her, it made things that I suppose actually probably are relatable to me actually more abstract, which is mm-hmm. strange because I'm seeing it through a character's eyes who who doesn't understand these things immediately. Yeah, and, and the other thing I, I liked is the occasional sort of Douglas Adams-esque moments that touch upon things which are so human and so recognisable to us, but extrapolating them into the future, like the Heinz 57 <laughs> varieties, yeah. causing the number 57 to become this this lucky thing after the very concept of 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 understanding the number of things that can exist sort of goes out the window. They're funny and they're relatable, but they're also, you know, sort of occasional flights of whimsy that take something otherwise mundane from our world and run away with it in a direction that you would never expect, which is what Douglas Adams did all the time. It does feel, especially with that example, also that there are concepts and ideas that are almost infused in the universe around us. They've Mm. been stamped in there at its creation almost, and they've filtered through Mm. um, and permeated everything. And so I think there's not only those moments, but the fact that there are lots of characters who also share names of you know, scientists and sort of mythological characters as well. It also feels like the world we're in is, it really is in flux because we are clearly understanding things from the perspective of characters who can manipulate, create and travel through space-time. But also it feels like this could be happening right now. And it's it, it's a very, very strange experience to read. But it almost makes you want to look for patterns in the things around the world and understand whether these huge concepts that might exist could actually be tied down, like you say, to very mundane, small-scale events. But that's from our perspective, not mm. from the perspective of you know beings that have a much bigger view and influence over the universe itself. So do you have any further um, opinions or perspectives on this being quite an unconventional book? Well, I think part of it comes from the fact that Rachel Armstrong is an unconventional science fiction writer. Um, as, as we mentioned before, she's Professor of Experimental Architecture at uh, Newcastle University. And I think she's approaching this story and these ideas without being weighed down by the expectations of a traditional narrative form. It's interesting that in the interview when we we spoke to her, which you'll hear in a bit, um, she talks about trying to give people toolkits through which they can make radical change um, to to the way that we live, to the way that we create our living spaces, not just incremental change, but radical change. And I think this is quite a radical change in the way that you would structure a story in many ways. 
it's it's a, approaching a series of ideas from almost from a, an upside down direction where it's saying forget all of these traditional rules about how you structure a story forget their hero's journey forget all this stuff what if we had a toolkit to do something radically different and to shape a story differently and to shape the way that we express ideas differently and i think that comes from the fact that she has this completely different background and is approaching storytelling in in the same sort of left field way that she approaches everything else yeah i completely agree um, I think that's a good place to leave our discussion for now, because now you can actually hear our interview that we had with Rachel Armstrong about origami, um, her academic work and the blurred line that exists between the two of them. So we're delighted to be joined by Rachel Armstrong, who's the Professor of Experimental Architecture at the University of Newcastle and the author of Origami. Hello, Rachel. Hi. It's lovely to talk to you and to uh, have the chance to grill you a little bit about how this book came to be. It's very unusual. How, how would you describe origami to a reader? It's an experiment in designing with space-time. And um, what I didn't want to do was make a linear narrative uh, for a piece that was trying to deal with multiple dimensions. Um, and so the title Origami really is a play on the idea of folding space and time. And uh, I was trying to immerse myself um, in a reality where if you did start to wormhole between different parts of the cosmos or even between different cosmoses or dark cosmoses or whatever was out there, um, that, uh, it, that it would keep the uh, reader guessing. Um, so it, it never really started out to think about a conventional narrative because it wanted to embody the idea of messing around with uh, space-time. So did you start with the whole story and the structure mapped out before you started writing or did you find that it evolved as you were as you were telling the story? Yes, that very very much so. It was um so the, you know, coming from this field of experimental architecture, I actually thought of it as a work of design. Um and one of the things that um you do in design is to try to build worlds. And um, so in some ways, it was a design narrative to actually conjure the space um, and its manifestations and try to move through them. And I wasn't really um, even expecting a central character. Um, you know, I, I would have been quite happy to find that everything was quite fragmented. Um, and it was really um, after a while I'd been writing that the character started to uh, create a, a meta narrative that that brought together these these multiple space time fragments. I don't really like asking this question because it can be probably quite intrusive for writers. But where did the actual concept of of origami actually come about in terms of the rules that you describe in one of the early chapters? Well, that, that's, that's interesting um, because the, the, the possibilities came out of 
working with circus. And um, a colleague of mine, Rolf Hughes, had introduced me to circus in um, artistic research. And I'd gone along to Stockholm University of the Arts where there was this amazing um, getting together of circus artists and contemporary circus artists that were working with their bodies, sense of space, time. And the technologies yet were very Victorian. And um, from that, we started to correspond with these ideas about what might happen if a circus uh, performance artist moved through space, because they move differently in an ordinary space. Um, so what might they do um, in a you know, much uh, more expanded realm? Um, so it actually, in some ways, starts out as a, as a design experiment and conversation. Um, I have real people to, to draw on um, from the way that you know, space gets contorted um, through the way that they live it, essentially. And I think that's why, in some ways, I feel it's quite a physical um, uh, story, that it, that it does move through the body and ecologies. So there, there are there are bodily um, uh, ducking and divings into worlds, you know, like going going through the gut of a of, a, of an extraordinary uh, um, uh, digestive machine and encountering the worlds within the world of the gut, um, and then the more cosmic view of you know how these um, different civilizations that are obviously you know many many light years away. Um, uh, are kind of scattered through the universe. And then the architecture in there with the introduction of the, of the very talented architect that can actually start to design spaces um, within the cosmic structure itself. So it's work, trying to work on many scales was the other part, not just folding space time at one scale, but um, trying to work on a multi-dimensional level. But it was actually the idea of the circus artist um, that enabled me to do away with the idea of the spaceship. And that was probably one of the big things for me that I, I didn't just want the um, the tr tr tradition of the militarized, indestructible world uh, moving through space. That it needed to be the body directly immersed in this environment as as much as it uh, could possibly be. Um, so so circus was a, a real inspiration for that. And when you have such grand concepts and ideas. Um, is it hard to have characters such as Mobius actually become, you know, real characters that you can follow without getting lost in in the wonderful sort of worlds and descriptive adventures that, that the character goes on? I mean, it must be very hard to kind of balance, yeah, these massive concepts with quite uh, intimate character development as well. You know. um, so I think what's what's interesting about that is that you know when when we're working in the studio with architects, you know when we're working you know with students or whether you know it's our own practice, we have to be able to hold two different perspectives uh, without contradicting ourselves. One, we have to know what the details of what it is 
doing right to the you know the the the, the smallest possible level we can we, we can see or work with sometimes that's at the molecular scale because I work with chemistries but others others uh, the other side is that um you're working with the social cultural environmental aspects and um, a different level of encounter and a different level of of sense and actually in design that's a challenge um so I guess in in that sense, I wanted to make sure that I, I could do both, um, and the, um, the, the the characters in some ways are you could imagine them as the visitors. <laughs> you know, you, you're thinking of the visitors. Well, how might this how might this visitor use this space, um, and um, you know what might be there, and how might they draw inference from it? So um, it's yes, I, I, I guess I'm 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 trying to approach it um, from a design perspective, um, and because in design as well, if you if you think about the work of the experimental architects like Lebius Woods or uh, Peter Cook, you know the narratives are based in cities, the narratives are based in you know communities and 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 what happens when certain objects or certain encounters are. Uh, uh, made apparent or um, uh, enforced on a kind of imposed on a on a space. So I think there are many tactics that are shared, um, but that's that's how I managed to uh, keep coherence um, at a at one scale and another scale. Uh, again, thinking through design. So uh, following on from that, could you describe what your work actually centres around? Because it appears to be extremely multidisciplinary. Right. Yeah. So experimental architecture, um, uh, the first person who coined that term was actually Peter Cook. And he was one of the members of the collective Archigram. And what Archigram did was they had a very visionary approach to architecture. And it was a kind of architectural experiment thinking about what architecture could be in order to reclaim um, personal power the, or power for ordinary people at a time when there were um, uh, town planners taking over the organization of cities and the motor car um, and a kind of distancing of people from community. What they did was they turned around the idea of um, high tech, so space technology, um, the latest materials, um, uh, you know, interaction, um, all of that started to become tools that were now given to people to reinvent the city with. Um, so that tradition of experimental architecture is, is visionary uh, and it also um, challenges uh, the limits of what architecture could be, um, and so necessarily the work that I'm that I'm um, I'm doing is in some ways following in those traditions, the the visionary and challenging the realms of uh, of um, architecture. Um, for me, I'm thinking about 21st century um, agendas rather than high modernity and um, you know how um, the the, the uh, technical advances that have come from the Enlightenment um, uh, can can change people's lives. I'm thinking about you know what are the native problems for the 21st century. And there was another, um, let's say, seminal um, uh, experimental architect after after Cook, and that was um, uh, Lebius Woods. 
And what he did was he, apart from totally changed the parameters for architecture, thinking about what are the consequences for architecture of war? How does how does architecture respond to the conditions of, of war? And uh, did a series on Sarajevo, or how does it respond to natural disaster? And then, you know, San Francisco with earthquake. Um, uh, all of that was said to be paper architecture, and, and it was used in a pejorative way uh, within the um, modern architecture or the contemporary architectural profession, saying that, yeah, these are great ideas, they're great drawings, you know, absolutely compelling work, but you can't build them. Um, and one of the things that uh, you know, we do um, you know, in our work is to actually uh, prototype so to go from the drawing board um, into the laboratory and start to make um, the experiments of architecture that um, uh, help us understand what a 21st century practice of architecture that's engaging with ecological questions could be. So in some ways, it's absolutely um, you know, unrecognizable in the traditions of, um, let's call it a, a contemporary modern architecture, you know, which has come out of the industrial revolution, which has uh, certain agendas and a certain rhetoric of, um, you know, form and function, uh, uh, ki particular kinds of mathematically based geometries that are, you know, becoming more organic through parametricism. Um, but the idea of uh, uh, the non-human, um, the, uh, the 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 living um, are really not part of that agenda. So that the experimental aspect of experimental architecture, looking at third millennial questions, seems uh, very far removed from what we might think of of architecture today. But in some ways, I'm really thinking about you know how do we get the imaginations of you know those young people that are out um, in town centres protesting about the state of the planet right now? How do we get them? Um, one, empowered, how do we give them a tool set that helps them do something radically different, not just a little bit greener than what we've already got, not just a little bit more efficient, but a radical departure from the way that we're thinking. And for me, you know, the, you know, the writing that I do is actually part of that tool set to um, open up the space for invention, dreaming, um, you know, it's just, you know, what is a community? Is, is a community just a sum of human parts? Or, or, or do we need to embrace other um, uh, living beings or non-living beings in, into our ideas about community and society? How do we look after them? How do we, you know, all those, all those questions that come out of science fiction, you know, and the consequences of adopting certain technologies are very, very relevant um, to um, an, an architecture or a relationship with space, matter, and time that is is meaningful for the 21st century. So, in some ways, um, you know, I guess we. You know, we wouldn't be doing our jobs if what we presented was was something that was already very recognisable, uh, but maybe a, a little bit different around the edges. So, I mean, and, and this is one of the reasons for using media that aren't, again, you know, traditionally on the curriculum for, you know, young designers. <laughs> Have you always wanted to write uh, specifically science fiction, even outside of that, as a way to... Uh, integrate some of the concepts you explore in your academic work? Do you see it as a parallel to it? Do you see it as an extension of it? I think it's all entangled. And even when I write my academic books, I can't help but um, put 
tiny narratives in there. They're, they're like illustrations, I would say. And the reason I uh, tended towards writing um, as opposed to drawing, I used to draw a lot, um, but it wasn't that portable. <laughs> Um, and um, uh, but but the, but the two actually fed them uh, fed each other. And I actually found that with words there was a different there was a different tool set, and that the visual is very domineering. That you can leave more to the imagination through words. You can leave many more spaces for the imagination to fill in than if you're drawing lines. Even even if um, you, you you put little clusters of things together. Um, I, I personally just found that the, that the words left uh, um, more magic, <laughs> um, you know, in, in, in the encounter than, than if I'd tried to use a visual medium, which is, is compelling and, and, and you end up criticising the, um, the, the, the different configurations. It's, you're much more judgmental about what you, what you look at, um, whereas, whereas the words, um, yeah, they, they, they leave you a lot of freedom. If you were to provide some examples of some of the influences that have steered the book and maybe your follow up as well, um, Invisible Ecologies, uh, what would they be? Would it encompass, you know, just other authors, uh, academic work or a complete array of, of different things? I think you're right with the array. Um, I think um, the, the, the books that I've been writing have been um, inspired by different aspects. I, th I think I start with an aspect of reality. So for origami, I was trying to rethink space and time. I'd been really excited by Ilya Prigogine's work on uh, Time's Arrow and um, the unidirectionality of the organic um, as opposed to a very controlled environments where time is reversible. Um, and so, um, you know, so uh, uh, Isabel Stengers and um, Ilya Prigogine setting this uh, incredible physical realm made of real matter um, that was that was, you know, in itself able to create it had a had a creative edge and what was nice about what Prigogine said was that this this to him was a theory that was much more like the nature that he that he understood as opposed to maybe some of the more classical um you know physical laws which seem to be reversible um and that doesn't seem like what happens in in nature so I mean that was one starting point but then I think um uh, you know, writers like Calvino, I, I, I like the idiosyncratic um, and the offbeat um, and um, Calvino's uh, Cosmicomics, for example, the idea that you could <laughs> have rather a dysfunctional family uh, creating, um, let's call it, encounters that then have quasi-scientific narrative and it's really interesting the way that Calvino takes science and then transforms it through this weird mythology. Um, so, and, and, and with that I think also, you know, kind of going back to um, uh, Prigogine, you re start to realize that actually nature is not real, it is surreal, that it, it, it twists and turns the laws that we expect it to take and does something else with it. Um, so, so, so that, that those, those were two very uh, powerful um, influences. I mean, obviously, Douglas Adams was someone that I've read and loved. 
um, and 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 also actually John Wyndham. You know, I always found that his um, simplicity of prose is was something I always aspired to, but never. <laughs> <laughs> never really reach. Um, if I could do that, that would be fantastic. Um, but there are also some really interesting um, academic authors, uh, people like Donna Haraway, um, and um, uh, you know the way that she uses words, I find um, extremely intriguing. So when you follow her flow, there's a pattern of her thought um, that really starts to get you thinking along with her. Um, and 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 someone like Bruno Latour as well. Their 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 radical perceptions of a world transformed by, let's say, a politics of uh, relationships um, becomes you know, a, a set of alternative laws, let's say, to Newton's laws that you can start to play with in a narrative and try and figure out, okay, so if uh, uh, Latour is right about Gaia, then, you know, what might happen here? Um, so it's, it's, it's creating some substitutions, and I think in a, in, a, in a way, a bit like the title of the book, a bit of a game. You know, if we had this laboratory, which we call the entire universe and all the universes within it, and we were an inventor, uh, like Calvino's uh, original cosmic comics characters. Um, if we didn't have scientific laws and we had other kinds of laws, uh, what kind of universe might we invent? You know, with, within that, you know, then what kinds of, you know, what kinds of layers and, and, and creatures start to uh, come alive out of this? And so in some ways, there's a, there's a, a, a humorous, playful um, underpinning that... Um, uh, you know, things aren't always played straight and, you know, they almost pun upon themselves in, in you know, in, in certain places. Not too much because that can be, you know, um, uh, a, a little bit naff. Um, but, you know, the idea that the, that, the, that the world is playing with itself, it's observing itself, that it's not quite taking itself seriously, even when various, uh, very serious things are happening, that there's that dreamlike kind of horror and comedy taking place both at the same time. And I, I kind of didn't want to lose that um, because that is something that, that you know, the, the uh, straight-laced physical laws don't help us with. <laughs> so do you uh, compartmentalise your fiction writing or do you treat it as part of your area of research, an extension of how you might be able to fulfil a more sort of creative aspect of it? I, I think if we if we don't give our imaginations exercises and uh, try to uh, stimulate our thinking to the extremes, it would become rather obvious and um, and, and dull. Uh, we get a bit bored with the kinds of things that we're doing. So. Um, being able to push yourself in terms of the the extremes of thoughts and try and wrestle with them to uh, invent new things, I think is absolutely part of a should be part of an academic practice as much as it is a a, a creative practice. So um, yes, ab ab absolutely. Um, uh, you know, the, the, this is part of um, a way I work. And if I didn't exercise these aspects, the the kinds of things that I uh, let's say have grant money to do wouldn't be possible. So you mentioned earlier on that you used to draw a lot, and certainly in origami, there are. I mean, it's filled with wonderful descriptions that evoke you know tremendous sort of visual images, which I'm not sure 
every reader is going to see the same way, if that kind of makes sense. Um, Did you ever sort of consider a book being the only medium that would suit origami or or would you ever think of maybe producing something visual off the back of it? Ooh, yes, no, I, I would say if, if I, I would love to see it um, translate into different media and, um, you know, in some ways I'd, I'd want to do its thing. But if I had to um, introduce it into a medium, I'd love to put it back to circus. I think that's what I'd, I'd kind of want to, you know, create a feedback loop to see what it, what, what it could become. <laughs> and could you tell us a little bit about your more recent uh, novel, Invisible Ecologies? Yes, the, the the theme that was running through this was actually um, our relationship with the living world, and um, that the living world is not something that's a convention. It's something from the outside. I, I wanted to look at the limits of existence. So the main character is an outsider. Um, the, um, the the space in which he grows up is outside of the main city. And um, the idea of of islands as being outside the great bodies of lands that we have, the main narratives about culture um, are about. So in some ways, it it wanted to take an outsider view of of life and nature and what it meant to inhabit space. And entangled bodies, I think, would be the other one, that the idea of being unitary, a unitary person, a unitary gender, uh, a, a unitary um, uh, consciousness, um, all of all of those things start to be up for grabs. Um, and of course, you know, you don't want to lose the reader. But um, again, it's one of those um, environments that does start to confound the senses or confound expectations about, you know, where the limits of things lie um, and, 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 and what becomes possible, um, you know, when, when we approach those limits. Which we're doing with our ecologies right now. <laughs> it's, no, it sounds uh, it sounds really fantastic. One thing we often ask people, and it's unusual because you're not solely a writer of science fiction and, and fantasy. Um, if you had any uh, specific books or authors that you'd like to recommend, uh, could you give us some examples? Oh yes, oh definitely. I think um, I guess I'll start with um, Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet. Um, which is um, written by a collection of authors from Anna Singh to Heather Swanson, Elaine Gann and Nils uh, Bubant. Um, and essentially it's, it's, it's a wonderful book. It's written in two parts and it's um, uh, like two books slammed together, one, one way up and one the other one the other way up. Um, and they meet in the middle. Um, and within this um, book are a series of really, you know, brilliant um, commenta- commentators, cultural commentators, scientists, um, reinventing the language of um, of a global society at a time of ecocide. It sounds really weird, but um, you get to figure out new things about um, uh, aspects of the world that you take for granted, like lichens, you know, like their clocks, um, and um, even the organisation of the living world through ladders and trees. You know, this becomes more complicated. Um, and each of them has a different background specialty. So the the language that you um, become familiar with and the expectations that you have of creatures is completely overturned. And um, there's some you know, wonderful contributors, including Ursula Le Guin, 
Um, and so in some ways there's that, 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 that there's a storytelling in it, but there's also this um, uh, real engagement with real issues in the living world that are um, uh, you know, being explored by um, um, academics. So there, there is a strong academic um, aspect to it. Um, the next one I think would be a world from dust how the periodic table shaped life. That sounds like a really unlikely compelling read. I'm a real chemistry nerd. And this is a fantastic book by um, Ben McFarland. And what it does is it tells you a story of the living world from dust, from the elements that uh, we have here, but also the extraordinary chemical physical um, aspects of the world. And I think one of the most beautiful things that he does here is he says that life is not a machine, it's a place. And he takes this example of a um, installation that's by a castle and he shows how its open-endedness um, is like a body that's mixing the air and the stuff that flows through it. Um, but what he, he, he tells you kind of really interesting things about evolution, you know, through chemistry, chemistry setting the limits for life. So um, it's a nerdy read and I think there are... Um, bits in it which um, he tries too hard to be popular. Um, when when he cuts to the chase with the chemistry, um, it's just really good. It's like all the chemistry lessons that I ever wanted, um, <laughs> all in one book. Um, so that's that's highly recommended. And then this other one, um, uh, Mir Maria della Bella Casa. Um, she's um, written a book called Matters of Care. And I find this absolutely wonderful. Another academic book, but again, she's changing the language um, of the way that we, um, I'm going to say work in the world. Um, because when we think about technology, we tend to think about what is the work that is performed. And we think of that in terms of mechanical efficiency or resource consumption. What's really interesting about matters of care is that she starts to introduce the idea that um, our relationship with other things involves something called care, because either we care about it from a socio-political perspective, like the environment, um, or we care about it because we've got to look after it, whether that's our granny or whether it's a job that we that we're doing the actual work of care and then the other part is um uh, the emotional side of our relationship with the things that we do and i think for me that this is a really important idea in um thinking about the future of technology if if we can actually expand our language so that we're not just using our computer there is some kind of exchange that's going on um maybe just maybe um a more mutual relationship with the things that we encounter every day through this idea of care um could start help changing our ideas about waste or the status of non-human things, or the status of um, advanced technologies. So um, for me, yes, none of those are um, uh, uh, narrative books. And the one narrative that I would um, recommend um, is by Ben Moore um, called More Trees to Climb. And um, 
So Ben is an actor um, and he's done a lot of work on the BBC, but I just remember him performing this um, uh, story. Um, a coelacanth was the, which was the one that I, I saw. And it was a beautifully surreal, bittersweet story about a guy who wants to get a girl and doesn't. Um, but it's all done through this athletic um, uh, sport of tree climbing. It's just beautiful, poetic, uh, a fantastic read, breaks your heart, make you, makes you laugh at the same time. So um, again, you know, the, the exquisite gymnastics of emotions, I think are actually um, embodied in, in his work there. So those would be my, my so quite nerdy, but also the, the, the kind of the delightful bittersweet. <laughs> One thing that just came to me when I was listening to you was uh, anyone who follows you on Twitter will know that uh, it's a great way to find out a lot about all these wonderfully diverse little snippets of information that tie together all aspects of, uh, well, of of various academic disciplines. There's a lot of science on there, but there's lots of links to really interesting articles or research pieces. When you're um, exposed to all this information yourself, do you ever think, ah, there's a story there. There could be something which I could explore um, in my own research or um, as an author in my own uh, narrative work. Oh, yes, all the time. Um, And sometimes it doesn't necessarily take the form of a book. Um, It will get embodied in a piece of design work or... um even an academic essay. So there was a lovely um, uh, piece that I read the other day by Umet Hak that um, is called Age of Collapse, short essay online. But what what his work did was absolutely take us from um, this kind of top-down view of what's happening with ecological collapse, political and social. And he says that um, really what's happening is um, society's collapsing from the bottom up um, and it's because we over-exploit and undervalue the, the little weak things around us. And it was that perspective that suddenly uh, made me think okay this is interesting now actually I can start to look at metabolism as a way of engaging with that incredible fabric that Uma Hacks you know just just described um, and taking that for a walk so yes um, you know looking at um, you know how I might actually start to design with that and one of the um, projects that I'm uh, that I'm working in a, in a team with is the living architecture project um, and that's got you know five um uh kind of collaborating centers across europe with um um, that's looking at how we might actually take different populations of microbes and use them to replace fossil fuels within our homes so rather than having dead microbes which effectively are fossil fuels that have been transformed by geophysical processes we take the living organisms that have got a bag of stuff they can do, enzymes and all kinds of metabolic wizardry. Um, And can we actually work with that um, to replace, um, you know, the infrastructure for modern homes which is creating all the all, all the trouble right now. So it was Umir's Umer's hacks, um, uh, you know, little obs- you know, let's say big observation in a little essay um, that really got me thinking, um, you know, through metabolism as a way of, uh, um, let's say, re rewilding the world. And do you have any upcoming uh, fiction works? Well, um, this summer I hope to send to Ian Waits um, uh, the decomposition comedy. <laughs> <laughs> Having read Origami, I mean, it's such an original piece of work that I think off the back of a title from one of your books, I'd be intrigued to find out, you know, more just by picking it up and uh, and seeing where it goes. 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> so uh, with that, uh, we'd like to thank you, uh, Rachel, for joining us for a chat about not only your work in fiction, but also your work as an academic as well. Where can our listeners uh, find you on uh, social media, etc.? I'm at Living Architect. That's that's the best way of getting hold of me. I'm on Facebook, but at Living Architect is uh, where things happen. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been great to sort of find out about all your work. It's been fun talking to you guys. Great. Thank you very much. So thanks again to Rachel for joining us. It was an absolute delight to listen to her talk about some of the the genesis of origami, what she's doing next. And I'm I'm definitely going to go out and try some of those books that she recommended, particularly the non-fiction ones. I think they sound really interesting. So to wrap up, um, as with all of our book club episodes, uh, we love to get comments and thoughts from uh, anyone who's read the book as well. And we were delighted uh, to get in contact with Anna Papacosta, who provided some collated comments, uh, which are really interesting and are to do with a brief sort of world tour that Origami went on last year. So she says, last year we took the book on a tour. The aim was to travel to as many cities and countries as possible and take a photo of the book. Also, the book is left behind for other people to read. Here's what we've achieved so far in no particular order. So from travels to Poland, Italy and Chile, Magda said, one of the most fascinating reads ever. The writer is well talented and I can't wait to finish her new book. Uh, having travelled to Hawaii, Switzerland and Los Angeles, Alex said, Rachel uses words and sentences in a most innovative way. You travel through worlds with Mobius and together you learn the art of origami. I loved the book. I kept stopping and going back to chapters to read them again. Chase me, she says. Why? Because I'm about to disappear. John, who travelled to Crete in Greece. My first sci-fi book, and I have to admit, although I was sceptical at the beginning, this book has made me change my mind, and now I want to read more and more sci-fi books. Uh, From Chris, who took it to Florida. Rachel's book helped me to travel through space and be Mobius. Learn new words and worlds. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you to the publishers for making this possible. From John, who took it to North Carolina, Chicago and China. I enjoyed reading the book. I enjoyed how the writer put together the science and the science fiction. From Ellie, who took it to Athens and Greece. The language is poetry. The book includes ideas about evolution and science. I love the book so much, I read it three times. And we understand from Anna that other people took it to Venice, to South Africa, to Halkidiki, which is the birthplace of Aristotle, to New York, to Spain, to Portugal, to Germany. This is a well-travelled novel, um, which I think is quite fitting for a story that is is so connected with the idea of exploration. Yes, an unconventional way of taking the book around the world uh, for a very unconventional book as well. (laughs) So I think, yeah, just to finish up, what I would say is, I, you know, I think Origami is a is a really fantastic book. It's one that I think we said at the top of the episode, it's best to not know too much about it before you sort of start reading it. And I think I would say that you do have to stick with it a little bit because it, it does go in some very unexpected directions, which are really thrilling to uh, uh, to engage with. 
it really marries the you know the science with the science fiction um obviously there's a you know there are wonderful descriptions which are based in you know very earthly understanding of uh, uh biology physics and chemistry which are not too uh, obtrusive to uh, the reader but are there i think almost to raise the level of expectation of understanding that these beings probably have already it's very well written it is as we've described a very mythological story that i think is unconventional in that it is written i think by somebody who is playing with the form of the science fiction novel itself whilst ultimately generating some really fantastical and original sci-fi concepts uh, which like many good books make me want to find out more about the upcoming works that uh, Rachel is going to be producing in the coming years. Yeah I definitely recommend it for fans of slightly trippy surreal subversive science fiction. Like you say you do have to invest in the book but it is definitely well worth investing time at the beginning. It's quite unlike anything else you're likely to read right now. Yeah, and I think I certainly remember finishing the book and thinking, wow, I can't believe that this happened. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't say what that is. Um, yeah, so uh, check out the book Origami by Rachel Armstrong and published by Newcon Press. So that's it from us this week. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us and thank you again to Rachel for giving us her time for the interview. Um, We hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you want to get in touch with us, as always, you can find us on Twitter at TFCAA or on our Facebook page, Time for Cakes and Ale, or on our website, timeforcakesandale.com, where we have a contact button and you can drop us a line. Yep, and uh, you can find uh, the podcast in all the usual places, wherever you get your podcasts from, such as iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and places. If you do enjoy listening to this or any of our other episodes, we would really appreciate it if you had the time to uh, subscribe to the podcast on any of these platforms that you use. And also, if you use iTunes, for example, please drop us a five-star rating and review because it helps boost the signal about all the work we're doing at Time for Cakes Now. Yep, and do follow us on Twitter to find out what our next book club choice is going to be. And if you're interested in getting involved, you can drop us a line to let us know what you think of the book. So that's all from us this time. Until our next episode, be, be seeing, seeing you. you.